Sachenko, and you're listening to Apple Talks, a podcast that brings stories in Apple Magazine to life to help you and your family live healthier and happier lives. He's talking to a group of teachers at the Calgary Teachers Convention in 2017 about how poverty and hunger affect children's brain development. He's a former teacher and the Senior Director of Program Strategies at Calgary Urban Project Society, an organization that helps people living in poverty and through traumatic events become self-sufficient. Worth says we have a social responsibility, if not a moral one, to understand what's happening in our communities and figure out how to help people move forward. I want to give you a quick profile on what a CUPS client looks like, a participant who comes into CUPS, and uh, help you to understand why it is that we do what we do. 59% did not graduate high school. We're talking adults right now. And this, most of the information comes out of our Family Development Center. You can't really talk about children without talking about them in the context of a family. So I'll do a little bit of jumping back and forth to some extent here. But 44% of our population failed to graduate from middle school. If we're talking grade eight, that, uh, that's amazing. And here they are now, their parents, and they're raising the next generation to some extent. 44% were abused as a child. 42% have symptoms of depression, mental illness. 62% of them are living off of less than 24,000 a year. This Calgary is the most expensive city in the, in the country to live in. It's already been uh, calculated and proven that this is a very, very expensive city to live in. 26% of our families live on under 12,000 a year. That means they get $1,000 a month, and on $1,000 a month, that's to cover all the expenses of raising a child, cover your rent, buy food, pay gas, electricity. I mean, it's amazing that they even are able to survive. That's a tiny, tiny amount of money. Our greatest referral on a, on a day-by-day basis is really for food. And so we have a pretty good relationship with the Calgary Interfaith Food Bank. Um, but you can see here, three to four daily food bank referrals are being made. And that has started to rise since this stat was first uh, grabbed out of our database. Back in, uh, I think if I go back to May, we were seeing 30 brand new people a day walk into our supports area, which is where we get basic needs as in food, clothing, um, get your rent paid because you're out of a job. We were seeing 30 people a day, and at, at our last count, we were upwards around 50 to 60 people a day. We'll even have had 80 to 90 people on, on a high point coming in that are just at the bottom of the, of the barrel. They're at the end of their rope. They're at the end of their bank account, and they don't know where to go next. These numbers are rising. This, that uh, in 2013, 2014, we had about 7,000 regular clients. As at the end of our last fiscal year, just over 9,000, and here we are just about a month and a half away from the end of our new fiscal year, and we're already way over 10,000 individuals. So we've noticed that over time, more and more and more and more people are coming in our doors, more and more people needing food referrals, more and more people with all the issues and all the trauma that's, that's happening. And so we began to wonder, what's really going on here? And so we actually followed the science. We went upstream to see what's causing it all. And here what you're hearing today is really some of the root cause. Because as classroom teachers, you probably see the symptoms happening right before your very eyes. Children who can't listen, children who don't follow instructions, children who have poor social skills. That's simply a symptom of things that have happened in their past 
or that have happened in the family's past. And so this going upstream is really, really important to understand what's happening upstream and begin to resolve some of those issues. Where it says adverse childhood experiences, such as physical abuse, neglect, or family dysfunction, lead to higher risks of health and social problems later in life. People with three or more ACEs are more likely to use drugs at an early age, have a teenage pregnancy, and develop a drug or alcohol addiction. They're also more likely to have liver and heart disease, stroke, diabetes, and other illnesses linked to ACEs. It's interesting to note that in North America, the number one maltreatment of children is actually just simple neglect. So children who are just sitting, perhaps watching a TV, and no adult interaction, no social stimulation at all. Neglect is the number one biggest ace that's happening in today's society, uh, a sad state. And so the, those are the young children, and now they're coming to you in your classrooms, and they are hurt. They are hurt. They are harmed in a, in a way just through neglect, and you now have to move them forward. You don't know in many cases what's going on at home. Sometimes you do know what's going on at home, Sometimes you have no idea what's happened in mom or dad's past, and it all plays a part in why you're seeing what you're seeing today. Uh, you, you just heard a little bit about the fact that the more ACEs, the more chances there are, or the more risk there is of behavioral issues, of physical and mental issues, and social issues as well. And it truly is about, if there's no supportive adult, and I love the stat that it just takes one, one supportive adult can offset the negative the negative outcomes here that are potentially possible from having these adverse childhood experiences. Uh, in 2013, here in Alberta, there was actually a phone survey that was done. 1,200 Albertans were phoned up and asked these questions about your ACE experience as a child. 56% of Albertans had at least one ACE. Only 12% had four or more ACEs. In a recent um, survey that was done here in Calgary with the most complex individuals that, who live in Calgary, they're the 300 of the most vulnerable individuals. They are the ones who have addictions, they have mental health issues, they have physical health issues, plus they're homeless. Of those 300 individuals, the average ACE score was 4.43, so they had somewhere between four and five ACEs. Females had a higher ACE score. They averaged around 5.02. So you can imagine that females who are complex individuals have had more adverse childhood experiences which can speak to why they themselves are struggling and perhaps why their children are struggling as well. Because again, you can't talk about a child out of context of the parents and the family. A great uh, smart guy named Dr. Jack Shonkoff, who's been uh, published in the American Medical Journal of Pediatrics and also works closely with the Child Development Center at Harvard University, has said that this trauma, this adversity, is a virus. And to deal with this virus, we have to deal with it just like we deal with a biological virus. So the first thing is universal prevention. Everybody gets vaccinated against it. So what that means is you need to make sure that a child never has toxic stress, that a child never has an adverse experience again. That's the first way, because then what you can guarantee is that 20 years down the road, when they are parents, they will perpetuate their children never having adverse childhood experiences. And 
you can then know that you've actually vaccinated the population from it. So that's the first thing to do. Make sure children never have an adverse childhood experience. I'm not saying never have stress, because as Nicole told you, there's good stress in people's lives. We need that stress. Then we need selective prevention. In other words, we need to find people who are at risk of getting the virus, and we need to treat them. We need to do whatever it takes to ensure that, okay, they're at the risk of having adverse experiences, that they're, they're at the risk of having toxic stress. Let's mitigate that. Let's get rid of the toxic stress in their life. Let's provide for them what's going to not have neglect, abuse, household dysfunction. And then you have to deal with those that are at the end of, not even at the end of their life, but they're later on in their life, and you can't prevent it because it happened when they were children and now they are adults. And you've got to provide for them specific prevention to ensure that it doesn't happen, that we mitigate the issues, that they don't generate that in the next generation to some extent. It really speaks to, there's an intergenerational approach here that happens, and that's something that we work at in CUPS is that intergenerational approach. So we've got pre and, pre, pre and postnatal care, we've got early child development programs, we've got family development programs, all basically to try and prevent a child from ever having an adverse childhood experience. Neglect, abuse, household dysfunction. All the way up to, we deal with a lot of homeless individuals, a lot of low-income adults, and we provide them with health care, with mental health care, with substance abuse support, and then those people in between, we've got services that provide for them as well. So we're basically following what Sean Koff said needs to be done to deal with this adversity, this trauma, this virus that's affecting us. Worth shares a little bit more about how CUPS helps people in Calgary. We're 1989, so we've been around for 27, almost 28 years. We've got 40 series of programs and, and services, but we hit health, education, and housing. That's the beautiful part, is that as you've heard with these adverse experiences, that it has effects on your social, your physical, and your mental being. So we're able to provide supports in all of those areas. Uh, our participants, as I showed you, is growing. We've got a series of partnerships. We're involved in all kinds of different research initiatives. There's two facilities. There's uh, the main one, which is there on your left, and then the Child Development Center there on your right. For those of you who've been around in Calgary for a long period of time, do you remember the bar, Coconut Joe's? That's it, right there. So I don't know if that's a, a comment on society, they, but uh, we run, now run a child development center out of an old bar, for sure. But some huge things are happening as a result of the work that we're doing with the children that are in our program. So that helps you to see that we are a multidisciplinary support service. We are very trauma-informed. Uh, it's focusing on prevention, the virus from never happening. It's providing all those wraparound services. So how do hunger and poverty change the brain? Worth says they're not everyday stressors. They're chronic, toxic stressors that change the architecture of the brain. And for kids, it changes how they interact with others. They are huge stressors. I think um, there was a, an interesting research that I just was reading about in terms of prenatal. So when the child is still within uh, mom's womb. And stress on the mother has an effect equal to if the mother is having poor nutrition on the child. So you can imagine, with poor nutrition, you're not getting all the right minerals and, and supplements and everything that the child needs to actually form their brain, form their body, muscle, tone, and skeleton, and all those sorts of things. And stress has the same effect. You can have good nutrition and have stress and have a child that's born low birth weight, 
poor muscle tone and have all those issues of poor brain architecture. Um, so it's the two that we're dealing with when we're talking about poverty because poverty and hunger go well together, unfortunately. Um, also, poverty is very strongly associated with poor education, with family instability, and caregivers who actually don't have an understanding of what it means to be a caregiver. Almost 100%, it's because that's the environment they grew up in when they were a child as well. And so they're just perpetuating, obviously, what they've already known, which creates this toxic stress, which has, as we're discovering, all these long-term effects on people's health and wellness in a variety of different ways. Uh, it's a physical phenomenon. It doesn't just happen to people, it happens inside them. It happens to their brain, it happens to their bodies on the inside. Um, Nicole talked a little bit about cortisol. That's the hormone that actually causes you to fight or flight. And when the brain is bathed in that cortisol on a regular basis, not only does it prevent the brain from forming properly, but it prevents it from functioning properly. And so we're, we're stressing people, we're stressing children through the fact that they're living in poverty, through the fact that they are hungry on a regular basis and their cortisol levels are up and their brains are trying to develop normally and they're trying to use their brains normally and they just simply can't. And when I'm saying children, I'm thinking all the way up into adolescence. I'm not thinking just little early years. The first six years, as we know, are very, very important, but this goes on into adolescence and even into young adulthood. Um, children are very, very susceptible to, the, to these effects, obviously. Um, cognitive functioning. So now this is looking at the children in our child development program. 80% of the children have disabilities or delays. We're set up for that. You may, seem like you may feel like your classroom is that as well, and you may not be set up for that, but we are set up to have this high proportion of developmental disabilities. Uh, one third of our children are below average in terms of their communication skills, so that affects not only their ability to speak and, and uh, um, understand, but it affects their ability to socialize with one another as well. They also, over half of them are below average in their self-regulation and executive functioning. And as Nicole pointed out, then they have an inability to control their emotions, they can't pay attention, they can't follow instructions, their working memory is, is so limited that they're not able to actually function in a classroom. Uh, and as a result, is the longer that it gets unaddressed, their cognitive functioning begins to drop off as well, because they're not learning anything, because they can't learn anything in that situation with those kind of stresses that are happening in their lives. Parents' cognitive functioning also is uh, undermined. They have difficulty understanding and responding to the children that are crying, to the children that are needing things, to the children that are asking things of them. Uh, they, in fact, many of our parents don't see a child in pain. They don't see a child asking. They just get, they are just angry all the time at their children because their children are demanding something that they are struggling with as well, which is really, really sad. Uh, and they have a very limited understanding of what it means to be a nurturing parent. Nurturing as in loving, as in caring. And that doesn't mean, we, we hear a lot about the, the North American affluenza, that's not nurturing, that's a total different disease altogether. We're just talking about loving and caring for, for children as they're growing and as they're getting the knocks and bruises of regular life. 
We embraced the, the science the, of building brains, of building resiliency very early on. We've, we discovered that it was, we feel rather, that it's going to be a way to just end that intergenerational cycle of poverty and trauma that's continuing to happen. And not just in Calgary, it's happening all across North America. Almost all of the developing countries now are struggling with this. Um, our programs are mitigating that toxic stress. We've got that two-gen approach, so we're dealing with the child, but we're also dealing with the family. So not only do our children get benefit, but our adults, our parents, are getting benefit as well. They're learning. They, they go through an entire program called Nurturing Parent. All our children are in our child development program. They're getting therapies from OTPT, speech-language pathology, art and music therapy. Um, we're providing them with meals. We're actually using a curriculum called PATHS, and PATHS is about providing alternative thinking strategies. And it's really about help, helping children to understand emotions, because one of the things that's been discovered is that children don't understand emotions when their brain functioning is, is degraded. So to understand their, what emotions are, and then to understand their emotions, understand the emotions of others, because that, you can understand, helps to translate into good social interaction. Um, wow, we're just flying along here. 91, so, the, so we've been building better brains for a while. Here's the good news. 91% of the children that have, were screened for a developmental delay have moved forward in at least one area of, that, of their child development. 68% who were socially, emotionally delayed when they started us at the beginning of their school year. So we take children when they're three, four, and five years old. We run a kindergarten program five, six-year-olds, most of them are five-year-olds. They actually are par, on par with their peers, ready to go to regular elementary school in grade one. That's a good news item. 100% uh, of the parents actually now have a better understanding uh, and better attitudes towards how to treat their children. 38% have an improvement in understanding and how to, how to respond to children's needs. So they may be still stressed about food, they may still be stressed about where they're gonna find the money to pay for rent, but they're beginning to understand how to interact with their children in a very positive fashion. Um, it's, not over for the, it's not over for the adults, for sure, because we understand brain plasticity, and we know that we can have all kinds of changes happening in life. As a former teacher, Worth has three major takeaways for any classroom. The first one is just, and this is some of the repetition, is to understand that there are two very distinct points that the brain is really vulnerable to the toxic stress. The early years, almost, almost really focused around ages two and three, but zero to six is, is, the, is the area. And it's all about that brain development that's happening in there. It's all about speech development and the foundations of behavior and cognitive skills. So if you're working in an environment where you're able to actually provide that supportive adult, where you're able to, to mitigate some of that toxic stress in an early years child, then you're doing good. You're actually making their life for the long term ever so much better. But also those teenage years, there's another opportunity there in adolescence. As Nicole pointed out, that's where you're eliminating all those unused neural pathways. So at, at, in adolescence, if a child hasn't, and this is a really simple explanation, but if a, if a child or an adolescent hasn't got any good social neural pathways, they're gonna get pruned away really fast. And then they're gonna be socially inept forever to some extent. So the more you can provide good social background and training for adolescents before this pruning begins to happen, the better it is. I love the Paper Tigers movie because that's high school kids and they are close to the end of their brain development arc and yet as soon as they had an understanding of 
it's not them who's bad, it's what happened to them in their past. And they begin to deal with that, they begin to mitigate some of those issues for themselves, which is really cool. So it's not really over until, usually we say the fat lady sings, but it's not usually over until they're actually into their late 20s, which is good news. I have a son who's 24 now, and he's only just got his brain back into his head, and it's very exciting to see him. He's, he's actually a young man. But I remember when he was 13 years old and he lost his brain altogether. Those of you who have teenager or work with teenagers, you understand that they actually do lose their brain. They, they, they don't know where they placed it, along with their binder and the pencils and everything else that they're supposed to have. Uh, the teenage years are the years where we're increasing their communication skills. So lots of communication with teenagers is really important to build those brain neuron connections so that they have that skill to develop their emotional maturity and help them to understand the politics of social relationships so that we don't have a bunch of mini Trumps running around. Did I say that out loud? Yes, I did. Uh, here's the second takeaway. Instead of asking what's wrong with you, and that's focusing on what's before you, it's actually what happened to you. So we try to avoid moralizing poor behavior. I remember 20 years ago, I, I was an assistant principal in a private school, and we actually brought a psychologist in and uh, began to understand how children who have learning deficits and the poor behavior that's happening, to, that, that they present in the classroom, um, we, we began to understand that it really was about those adverse childhood experiences they had. And we needed to stop saying, what's wrong with you? Why can't you do this? And begin to understand what happened to you, as prenatally in some cases, but as your childhood progressed, what happened to you? And then seek to understand those events that are resulting in what you're seeing in front of you. It takes so much energy when you still have the curriculum to get through and you still have to do assessments and write reports and meet with parents and you got to supervise. I know. I lived it for 30 odd years. Here's the third one. All it takes is one supportive adult. Just one supportive adult relationship to change somebody's life and their destiny. And it almost sounds cliche, but now it has been scientifically, biologically proven that it just takes one adult. And it doesn't have to be a mom or a dad. It doesn't have to be a family member. Um, we, we should work at designing our schools so that not only are they physically safe, but they're also emotionally safe. And there's a lot of movement about that right now that's happening. Some of it good, some of it not so. Um, but also to remember that when adversity is occurring in the context of a relationship, healing also occurs in the context of a relationship. So the relationship that you have with those young minds, bodies, brains in your classrooms can have a huge impact on their destiny for life. I'm Amy Sachenko, and you've been listening to Apple Talks. For more information, visit www.applemag.ca.